Genesis chapter 5. Uh, I figured since this is an early morning meeting, it's better to talk about spirituality, walking with God. And um, one of my new Bible heroes the past several years has been Enoch. Mm-hmm. And um, also, I like the challenge of proving um, the statements that I often make and other preachers make that, oh, the word of God, you can't exhaust it, except when you get to the genealogies and you feel like, yeah, there's no message here. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'd like to do is um, systematically build up. Um, I know we have till about eight for breakfast. Um, so I'll do my best to um, try to keep us moving along in a steady, fast, a steadfast pattern. And um, talk about spirituality tomorrow. We'll, tomorrow morning we'll deal with Jesus and what he talks about in terms of spirituality. Um, so anyway, Genesis 5 verse 1. The Bible says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now we have to pause here for a moment. First of all, um, the book of Genesis is, is separated actually by genealogies. And so what happens is when they're transitioning from one patriarch to the next, they put a genealogy there. Mm-hmm. So here we have before Noah, right? So this is passing down. And each of these individuals become types of Adam. And so you have Adam, and then now you're about to go to Noah. And so then you have a genealogy of how you get to Noah. Then after Noah is done, you go genealogy again, and then you go to Abraham. Mm. Then from Abraham, when he's done, he has Keturah, his wives, all these things, but then you have a genealogy of Isaac um, as well. And then from Isaac, you have a genealogy of Esau and Jacob, and then you transition over. But the only difference is there's no genealogy between Jacob and Joseph. It's very interesting, because really half of the book of Genesis is about Jacob. He's born in 25, he dies in 4950. And you're thinking, okay, so that whole Joseph story is actually just a piece of Jacob's story. Um, It's a sub-story to basically how God used his beloved son to preserve all that was his. um, And through the transformation that they went through as a result of that. But anyway, so um, the Bible says that in this genealogy, we typically look at this begat this person, this begat this person, and so there's no significance But it's very significant as you look at the first verse and eventually when we come to Enoch. It says that this is the day that God created man and he made him in the likeness of God. Now, you need to know that in the Bible, the word Adam or Adam or Adamah, depending on how you, you know, in the Hebrew, whatever. But this is actually the word that's usually translated mankind. So when we say all men or, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. We're not just talking about males. We're talking about humanity. It's just the general term we use. So Adam would be that term. So when it says there in verse 2, he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind. That's the word Adam or Adama. So male and female, you're dealing with Ish and Isha, right? This is what Adam says when he first meets Eve. He says, you shall be called Isha because you were taken out of Ish. This is the first time he recognizes he is male. 
And that's a, for a whole nother study because I'm interested in, in masculinity and establishing biblical manhood. Um, but Adam begins to recognize his calling and his specific purpose within humanity. When he meets a woman, he realizes, I'm a man, you're a woman. And he gives her this name as this is a, literally a piece of him. And so to hate her is actually to hate himself. And this is essentially the foundation of humanity, which is um, caricatured in the marriage relationship. This is how we should relate to all men. Um, but in this sense, this is how God calls them in the day that they were created. They were all called Adam, right? Not just Adam and Eve. It was just Adam. That's who they were because she was literally taken out of him. But the Bible tells us that he was made in the image of God. Right? He was made in the likeness of God. But in verse 3, it says that Adam lived 130 years and he begot a son, how? In his, in his own likeness, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting because Adam was made in whose likeness? God's likeness. God's likeness. But when he has a son, his son is in his own likeness, mm -hmm. which suggests that Adam no longer bears God's likeness. Mm -hmm. So what this begins to let you know that there was a gap. There's a bridge that just took place. A break. Because if he's in God's likeness, his son should have been born in God's likeness. Now you begin to understand the intention of humanity. <coughs> the intention was that I would create one man in my image, one woman in my image, and together they continue to produce in my image. Are you following? Mm -hmm. And that is the call of parenting. But you see, we begin to see our lives in two ways. We see our lives in terms of the ideal, and we see our lives in terms of the reality. The real and the ideal. You see, the reality is we are all born in the image of our parents, mm. in their likeness. You cannot understand yourself if you don't understand your parents. Mm. And that's why the devil is so wise, because he puts it into every culture that parents keep their stuff to themselves. Mm. Your parents don't come and spill their guts to you. They don't say, you know, I made these mistakes when I was 19. I was this flirtatious girl when I was 15. Or I was this guy dating all these girls, or I was rude, or I was disrespectful when I was 13, 14, 15. They don't want to tell you that. They just want to remind you, right, I walked 10 miles in the snow to get to school. <laughs> I was dedicated to my education. You, people, you young people have cars and buses and all these. And that, those are the only stories you hear. Am I telling the truth? So you're thinking, oh, you know, and they, they want to make sure you know, this, what was in me is in you. You are my son. You are my daughter. You can do this. And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> so, but I'm in your image. I'm in your image. You know, I always tell parents, you know, even sometimes my wife, I have to remind ourselves, kids don't raise themselves. Mm -hmm. If my daughter is speaking that way, she didn't get that from anyone else. She got it from me. Mm -hmm. And I have to accept that, whether I like it or not. Mm -hmm. Or if my son has a temper, or people are selfish, or they don't want to share she didn't learn that. She didn't go to a seminar and, hey, guess what? All those things. When you see it, it's mine. When you touch it, it's mine. If you like it, it's mine. No one taught her that. In her brain, it just clicks like, yeah, I like that. That's mine. Okay, here's my phone. Yeah, can I use your phone? This is how the conversation starts. Papa, can I use your phone? Sure, you can use my phone. Can I have my phone? No, it's mine. That's confusing. You just asked me for my phone. But now because you're playing on it's yours. But the reality is, as ugly as that is, that's my image. Mm -hmm. And too often times, parents don't take ownership of that. Mm -hmm. Because they were not in his image. You can't have a son that is, in, that is not in God's image unless the father 
and the mother were not in God's image. It's not possible. So when it says, Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him. These are all the things that God did to Adam in the previous verses. He made him in his image according to his likeness and he called them mankind. He named them. So to name this thing, it's like this is, I am the source when you name something. This comes from me. I made this. And it is a reflection of myself, so I will name it. But this gap tells us that the reality is we cannot understand ourselves if we don't understand our parents. We don't understand our struggles. We don't understand our weaknesses. We don't understand our tendencies. Because we're thinking we just developed these weaknesses out of nowhere. Or we were hanging out with a bad crowd for a while. Or I shouldn't have been watching all those TV shows. Or I shouldn't have watched these movies. Or whatever. This is what we think. We, we, we're looking for something to ground the fact, where did this thing come from? Why is my struggle this and not this? It seems like it's so easy for this person to have confidence that God is speaking to them. But I struggle with that. But guess what? It's looking you right in the face. It's in your house. There's the answer. Whether your parents like to admit it or not. Is there. The difference is they, they had the years to grow into it. And say, oh, I know how to manage that. You're just half the age of their life, so you didn't have as much time. So you're not over it yet. But the ideal says that your parents and my parents are supposed to be raising us to get back to his image, because that's how we were supposed to be made. So the goal of the parents then, on one side, you have the parents who refuse to own their mistakes and weaknesses and tendencies. Then you have on the other side of the extreme is the fact that, oh, you know, um, I'm not going to be the example, but you have to be in God's image. It's like, wait a minute. So on one side, you want to emphasize your weaknesses. On the other side, I mean, you want to hide your weaknesses so I don't understand myself. But then you don't want to lead me to be in God's image. You want to lead me to be in your image. So this becomes the other side of the coin. So now my parents are trying to raise me to be like them. I'm a doctor, you must be a doctor. We have to continue the family tradition. I'm a professor, you must be a professor. I'm a musician, you must be a musician. It's just, you want me to be in your image, but I wasn't made to be that way. I was made to be in his image. And so this gives the responsibility of parents and children that our job in our relationship is to come to terms with whose image we are in currently, and to cooperate together to get back to the actual image we were created to be in. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? Now, this is critical. So, now you have this formula that begins in verse 3. How long the person, so we have the person, Adam, how long he lives, 130 years, he begats a son, then he names his son. Then we find in verse 4, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So I want you to notice the pattern, right? His name, this is how long he lived. He had a son. He names his son. After he begot his son, this is how long he lived, and he had sons and daughters. You following that? Let's go to the next one. Verse, <clears throat> verse 5. So all the days of Adam lived were eight, 930 years, and he what? Died. Died. Always ends that way. Okay, let's go to the next one. Seth. There's his name. He lived how long? 105 years. And he begot Enosh. Okay. And after he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years. And he had 
sons and daughters. You notice the pattern. And then what does the next verse say? So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he with me. Whenever you see a pattern, this is when you recognize, okay, there's a model going on. But therefore, now when I'm studying a book, or particularly in this particular passage, now I'm looking for the anomaly. I'm looking for the contradiction because it just continues this way. And the monotony of a genealogy is setting you up for the thing that deviates from the pattern. That is the whole message, is the deviation. So let's continue reading. So it says, verse 9, Enosh lived 90 years, and he begot Canaan. And after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived how long? And he had <coughs> sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Followed the pattern? Okay, let's go to the next one. Canaan lived 70 years, and he begot Mahalalil. After he begot Mahalalil, Canaan lived 840 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he, Mahalalil lived 65 years, and begot Jared. And after he begot Jared, Mahalalil lived 830 years, and he had, so all the days of Mahalalil were 895 years, and he, it's all the same so far, right? Let's keep going. Jared, verse 18, lived 162 years and begot Enoch. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived how long? 65 years and begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch, interesting, deviation, yes? Because in the previous one, it says, after he begot Enoch, Jared what? Lived. Do you follow that? Verse 19. So after he begot, every time it says after he begot, it tells you how long he lived. Are you with me? But now we come to verse 21 and it says, Enoch lived 65 years, the shortest of all of them, mind you. So he was a youth. The shortest of all of them. Adam was 130 something. You got someone who was 90 years but Enoch 65 had a son very early and it says he begot Methuselah and after he begot Methuselah Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters so all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him deviation so first of all the Bible is now setting us up through this particular genealogy it's setting us up through this genealogy to say, listen, every person before Enoch, he's the seventh from Adam. From Adam all the way down, they all have the same experience. They live a certain amount of years. They eventually have a son. After they have the son, they live a certain other part of years. They have other sons and daughters. And then it tells you all the days of their life were this and they died. Are you with me? But Enoch, the Bible says everyone else lived. Enoch walked. Now, obviously, we're not talking about physical walking. Because Adam walked. The Bible says God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He was hiding from God. He could walk. So all of a sudden, in this passage, there's a deviation from the fact that he lived 65 years. He had a son. And after he begot his son, Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. 
the same experience that his forefathers had had, exact same. It impacted Enoch in a way it did not impact them. Enoch was not a derelict. He was not an unspiritual man. He was not someone who didn't know God. Because it doesn't make sense after him to start walking with God, you don't know him. So he knew who God was. But the same experience that was so normal, that was so common, it took Enoch's experience to the next level. But it was so basic, because everyone is having sons and daughters. Everyone's having babies. Why is it that Enoch is impacted by this? So what this lets us know is that the first point is, is that when Enoch begins, after he has his son, he sees something in this experience that Adam did not see. And something that is so normal. Do you know that a child is born every three seconds? Three seconds. Think about that. Person dies every six or seven. So, <laughs> every three seconds, someone is experiencing what Enoch experienced. But after they have their son, they're just like everybody else. They lived. But the Bible says Enoch walked. His spiritual life was deeper because of this experience. You see, many times when we are talking about taking our spiritual lives to the next level, we're looking for something supernatural. We're looking for some amazing faith experience. We're looking to go down and we prayed over a man who couldn't walk and he stood up and started walking and leaping and praising God. We went to a, we went to a situation where we're driving in a car and all of a sudden we were off the road and the car just floated back onto the road. We're like, this is crazy, man. The Lord is, this is crazy. I got to give my life to Jesus like he preserved my life. And then we give testimonies about it. And those are the testimonies we like to hear. When I was in Ethiopia a few years ago, God was telling me downtown Addis, the big Adventist church there, fellow watch church. I mean, it's huge. In the middle of Addis Ababa. This guy's like, yeah, this is like a busy strip. I mean, businesses all along, the vendors, the whole nine. And they have this law in Ethiopia that uh, if, uh, if you hit a person with your car, if you injured them, you have to pay for the medical expenses for the rest of their life. And you have to pay them a salary. Because now because you hit them, they can't work. Wow. Wow. So they have this saying, they have this saying in Ethiopia, that when you hit a person, finish him. Because it's cheaper <laughs> to pay for his funeral wow. than it is to pay for him for the rest of his life. So if they hit a person, they go to reverse. And they start chasing the person. So people get hit, they start running. Because they think the person's going to try to kill them. Because it's just cheaper for them. And I think since they've changed that law, I hope they have. But this guy told me, he said, so, you know, Brother Sebastian was so crazy. I was crossing this main road. I mean, this is like a major highway. He's crossing the road and he hits the median and he saw the traffic coming on his right side. They're coming towards him. So he thought, oh, I need to hurry up. Trips over the median. And literally, he's falling into the street. Right before he hits the ground, he stops level. <laughs> Something pushes him upright, and the cars pass. All these people were downtown, saw this. Wow. The banana vendor, the guy selling the hot dog, everything. They're all like, 
what in the... Then he crosses the street, people just staring at him. I'm like, did you get any free bananas out of it? <laughs> no, he said, I still had to pay. But the crazy experiences, we look at those experiences and we're like, man, I mean, people were watching when this thing happened. He's literally stands upright. There's no way you can do that. And we're looking for those kind of experiences to take our spirituality to the next level. But Enoch's life says no. We need to stop looking for the supernatural. And we're missing the very depth and the very things that could actually take us to the next level right before our eyes because they're normal. And so Gandhi, he coined a term called the supernormal. It's an interesting concept. So Gandhi comes and he, he's coming back from South Africa, whatever, they treat him as the savior, and he decides to live like every other Indian lives. Exactly the same. The poorest of the poor. They have to literally weave their own clothes. And he's terrible at weaving. So Gandhi is thinking, you know, how, you know, this thing is so difficult. He's going through all He's traveling the way everyone travels. He only has as many clothes as they have. But eventually, when he begins to be used to create this revolution to break them off from the British Empire. The question, you know, is asked to Gandhi, you know, when he gives his, one of his first speeches. He said, you know, Gandhi, what do you want to say to the people? He says, you come here to these little rallies and you give your little p political speeches. You talk about this political party and these people don't believe this and they don't support Muslims. And Gandhi says, but the reality is most Indians, the number one concern every day is bread. Your political speeches don't feed their children. He's like, they are not moved. They are not inspired. And as you're listening to the speech, right, of course, people are like, quiet. They're like, what kind of political speech is this? And this wasn't eloquent. When he finishes, right, they're like, you know, this is the man who's da-da-da. And they come to him and they're like, that was a little different. And the person looked at the political leader who said that was a little different. And he said, well, I mean, he lived very differently than we all live. They live in palaces and nice houses and no connection. And the thing that made Gandhi such a supernatural man was a supernormal life. But see, you think that's just a Gandhi thing. But when Jesus came... For 33 years, he lived on this earth in 90% of it. If you take 33 and you take out 30, that's 90%. Three years would be 10% of his life. 10% he spent in full-time ministry. 90% carpenter shop. Living the way every other person in Israel was living. And not just any person, in Nazareth. So you're saying, what produced the man that was walking on the Sea of Galilee? What produced the man that could teach the law in such a simple and accessible way? What instructed this man? How did he become this individual that he became? One garment. It wasn't through some supernatural training. It wasn't because he went out to the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil for 40 years. Now he comes back. Moses, 40 years, okay, you get Moses. 
Jesus, 30 years living like everyone else. No surprise that Moses became Moses tending sheep on the backside of the desert. Not in Egypt. Under Pharaoh, the wisest men that the world could offer. Living in a palace and understanding this life. It was through the supernormal that made these men the great men that they were. But you and I, we want to avoid the normal things of life. My life is so boring. This generation is obsessed with entertainment and excitement. Obsessed with being sensationalized, wowed, dazzled, inspired, moved. But what they're missing is the thing that is moving them is right there. You ever notice something that you drive a route, maybe you drive to work or you drive to school or you drive to, you know, some other, some place you go to all the time. And the day comes when you actually have to walk. <laughs> and you notice things you didn't notice. <laughs> because you walked. Mm. You actually had to take in the journey. Mm. And you had time to admire the normal things. I didn't realize this garden was here. I didn't realize this person had all these beautiful flowers in the front yard. Because when you jump, all you're thinking is, why is this guy driving so slow? I need to get to my destination. But it says after he had his son. You see, Enoch became my hero. Because I remember, um, I've shared this story before about what happened after I had my daughter, my first child. And... When um, my wife was pregnant with my first child, we had this discussion, right, about um, names and all these different things. And I'm really big about names. So after one night, my friend came to me early in the pregnancy, this guy from Chile. He was a medical doctor. And he said, he said, Sebastian, um, he says, when, you, when your wife is pregnant with the baby, say so you should sing to the baby in the womb. And I'm like, no way, Give my child brain damage. I'm not a singer. He's like, no, no, trust me, trust me. He's like, if you sing to her every single day while she's in the womb, and then when she's born, if you sing that same song, she won't cry. He's like, you should try it. I'm a medical doctor. I'm telling you the truth. Then, of course, he disappeared to Chile, right? Never saw him again. So I'm, I'm talking to this, right, this belly, this round protrusion in my wife's body <laughs> every night. It's like, oh, yeah, how are you doing? Your day was fine. I don't know if you're spinning in there. So sing the same song, which was uh, the hymn, When He Cometh. So one night, this is about five months into the pregnancy, so you're about halfway done. And my wife was knocked out sleep. And Ellen White says, a pregnant woman should never be cold. So I didn't want to lift up the blanket. Be like, I have to, so I have to get under the blanket to talk to this belly. And I'm like easily very hot. So I'm like, all right, we got to make this fast. <laughs> so, of course, I start talking the normal stuff. But then all of a sudden, while I'm talking, um, something just hit me very hard. My wife and I had watched this Christian film, and this guy lost his daughter in the film. Mm. And that was kind of in the back of my mind. So now as I'm sitting there having this discussion with my in-the-womb child, um, you know, I start saying these things that I had not planned to say. I don't even know where they were coming from. It was just like I felt myself inspired to say these things, moved to say them. And I started saying things like, you know, I don't know how tall you're going to be. 
I don't know if you look like me, if you look like your mom. I don't know if you're going to like sports like I do or you like music like your mother likes sports. I don't know if you're going to be silly and clumsy. I don't know if you're going to be very particular, very girly or not very girly. I don't know what your favorite color will be. I don't know if you'll not like watermelon like I don't like watermelon. <laughs> but the one thing I know is that before I even knew you, I've already loved you. In my house, I have a room with a bed waiting for you to sleep in it. I have toys waiting for you to play with. I have clothes for you to wear before you even come. And if the day ever comes where you think, oh, I have to do this to, to make my papa proud. I have to do this so that he will love me. I will look at you and I will tell you I loved you before you knew what love was. It was like oxygen. Before you even were, you knew what oxygen was, you were already breathing it. And this is when I realized everything I'm saying to this baby is the same exact thing that is revealing to me a very small piece of God's heart. And God looking and saying, this is the thing that impacted Enoch. That he's looking at his son and he's thinking all the love and the joy the protection, the desire to train him and to teach him, to make him the very best, to make him better than himself. It was flooding in his mind. And he began to understand God's heart for himself because he sees his own heart for his son. He's thinking, I love this kid so much. I enjoy everything they do. So now you go back over things and you say, when Jesus teaches us to pray, our father, why doesn't he say some super fantastical term as our king? My maker, my king, my Lord. My Redeemer. No. He says, when you come to God, you say, Our Father. Why? Because when my child comes to me, it's like someone asked me, they said, what's, what's the, the day you're looking forward to? You know, when my daughter was about three, four months old. I said, I'm looking forward to the day when she recognizes that I'm her Papa. Mm. And the second day I'm looking forward to is when she begins to call me that. So when she comes to me, it came to the point where, you know, she gets comfortable. Now she knows the words. She starts saying Papa all the time. Papa, can I have this? Papa, can I have that? It doesn't matter what she's asking. It's just the fact that she calls me Papa. And that just, you know, melts you down. And you're like, I'm not this hard preacher anymore. Sure, you can have this. <laughs> you're so giving and unselfish and all these things. Melted by the word Papa. And then Ellen White tells us in Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, commenting on the Lord's Prayer, that she says that when we come to God, right, and we ask any request by calling him father, she says it's like music to his ears. Wow. She comments on the woman at the well that she says when she put that bucket down and began to run for her village, Ellen White compares it to the day that a child realizes this is my father. Mm. And that's why Christ says, I have meat that you know not of. My daughter has recognized that I am her father. But here's the blessing that this is discipleship. This is evangelism revealed through parenting that, look, I loved you before you knew what love was. Jesus wasn't waiting for the woman to respond and do this and then I'll love you. No, he was already loving her. He made her. He was guiding her life. He led her to that well that day to meet her. But in the same sense for you and I. Here is Enoch saying, listen, when he looks at his son, 
And he realizes how much he loves his son. He realizes how much God loves him. And when he realizes how much his son trusts him, how much confidence his son has in him, how his son only finds his security in the presence of his father, how his son loves to play with him, whatever he teaches him, he accepts it. It is the truth because my papa said it. He began to realize this is how I trust God. And why Jesus says, if you don't become like a little child, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Because you see how a child trusts its father and its mother. Its desire for their presence. It doesn't even feel secure when the father and mother is not around. It doesn't like strangers. But in this sense, this is what impacted me. Only to realize when his father preached the gospel to him as a young boy. That one day, the same love he had for his son, he could not imagine. Giving up his only son. For someone who hated him. This is impacting Enoch's mind. And the Bible says, after he begot Methuselah, he walked with God. Literally, in communion and relationship with him through the super normal. I want to challenge you this morning because when everyone else had a son, they lived. Enoch had a son, he walked. Everyone else will come to sing songs. Everyone else will come and sit in church and they will live. But we have a decision that we can go to worship. We can sit and listen to the word of God being opened. How many times have we had, has this happened to us? And you wonder, I go to church. I heard that sermon. How come this person is so moved? I've been there. I understand it. You're sitting in church and like this person is weeping. I mean, their heart is completely broken. They feel like God has like invaded their life. And they don't even know how to make sense of it all. I'm listening to the same sermon. I'm just like, oh, okay, that was a pretty good sermon. The perceptions. The sensitivity of the heart. The person who's not looking for something supernatural. They're looking for God. And Enoch found him. And he took him to the next level. And the interesting thing is, is that... He walked with God longer than he lived. He lived 65. He walked 300. And then it says he had sons and daughters. Sometimes we think that having a family is antithetical to having deep spirituality. Oh, once you have kids and a wife and everything, you can't really study the Bible. You can't be close to God, really? Because Enoch had at least five children. Sons, plural, daughters, plural, and Methuselah. Mm -hmm. That's five. And a wife. And yet, he is a type of the 144,000. Mm -hmm. People who will be translated without seeing death. And God will take him to heaven. And the Bible goes on to say that all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. It wants to emphasize this. And he was not. For God had took him. You just broke the pattern. Guess what? Enoch didn't die. He continues 
to live. All his days on the earth were 365. Nothing supernatural. Just a common occurrence that happened to every other man. And yet now he's so close to God that God says, I'm just going to take you to heaven. Before it's even time. He gave him his own personal second coming. It's crazy. And so you and I think that spirituality is not connected to the second coming. We think our preparation in these last days, that the very foundation of Enoch is a picture of what that means. Then we are not going to be a part of that number if we're not walking with God in close communion with Him, understanding His love for us, His desire to teach us, and deepening our trust and faith in Him. And it doesn't take anything special, like it didn't for Moses and like it didn't for Christ. And we look at this man, we worship him, we praise him, we're honored that he would even give his life for us. And you say, what made Christ that way? It's not because he was God. It was the life that he lived. Normal, everyday life, but he saw something different. He saw something different. And we can too if we make that decision. Say, Lord, I'm done looking for miracles. I'm done looking for something amazing. Something supernatural out of this world. Give me eyes to see. Because remember, the Bible says, by faith, Enoch was translated. So that tells you it had nothing to do. Nothing to do with the thing itself. It had to do with his eyes. It had to do with his faith. So if we're going to experience this, it's going to be by faith. And faith does not change your perceptions. It changes your behavior. Mm -hmm. You will continue to see things exactly the same way. But faith tells you there's something more. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for um, the opportunity to dive in depth into your word. To reflect upon the experience of this man. Who is truly a hero to many of us. Looking down from heaven above even now. Lord, to know that his life wasn't even fully lived on earth and that he lived less than every single man in this chapter on the earth, but he's actually the longest man that ever lived because he's never died. And that's because he walked with God. But it was after something. And so it is our prayer that each of us can leave this weekend and say, after Korean camp meeting, I began to walk with God, that this would be our genealogy, that this would be our story, that this would be our experience. Forgive us, Father, for always looking for a sign, for a miracle, and help us to look at the miracles that are already around us, the ways in which God has already spoken. And may we be inspired. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, 
please visit www.audioverse.org.